This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 87. You ready? You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your hosts, Michael Blanc. Hey there, welcome to the show today. Now, we normally talk about multifamily, but I want to do something a little different today. I wanted to learn more about self-storage. So I brought on expert Hunter Thompson to the show today. And Hunter is the founder of Cashflow Connections, and his business is to connect investors with deals, specifically self-storage. And he's basically done 100 deals already valued in excess of $350 million. So the man knows what he's talking about. So I wanted him on the show to kind of give us an overview of, of self-storage, why he likes it, where he invests, uh, what are some of the rules of thumbs and some of the guidelines for investing in this asset class. So without further ado, let's get in with Hunter Thompson. Hunter, welcome to the show today. Thanks again for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's awesome. So introduce yourself a little bit. What are you doing? What's your business? Tell us a little bit about Hunter. Sure. So my name is Hunter Thompson. I'm not the author. <laughs> I'm the founder and managing principal of Cashflow Connections. We're a private equity group that helps accredited investors get access to passive real estate investments, particularly commercial real estate with a focus on mobile home parks and self-storage. Got an interesting background, really risk averse, but really dedicated to cash flow and very much like you helping people get out of that mindset in terms of net worth and really converting net worth into cash flow. So we curate investments that I personally invest in and have been investing in for the past seven years or so. That's cool. How did you get started with real estate? Sure. So my grandfather was a successful businessman in the 70s and 80s, and I learned a lot from him, not only in terms of directly from him, but from a big picture perspective, just the idea that you can really generate and create significant wealth by investing in businesses and hard assets. And this is something that really, from a very young age, I was really inclined towards. I mean, I was very entrepreneurial at a very young, you know, five or six. I remember my mom lived near a really popular concert venue. And when there was concerts or events or football games, the parking situation was really, really crazy. And there's a really significant supply demand disequilibrium. And so we used to sell parking in our backyard. And I remember, you know, going out there selling parking for five or 10 bucks. And then of course I would split the parking with my mom. <laughs> and so that was kind of what it was like growing up with nice. me as a kid. You know, a lot of people had their paradigm shift in 2008. I think that that was a really big awakening moment for me just because I knew there would be a tremendous amount of opportunity in financial assets just because they had been so depressed. I was originally really interested in stocks just because of the deflation of the prices. I was later turned off from that for a couple of reasons, most notably because the lack of predictability of the cash flow and the volatility, which really is kind of one and the same, but essentially it doesn't help you directly achieve your goal if your goal has to do with the mindset that goes along with cash flow. So in 2010, that's when I really had my last strong moment. This is when the European debt crisis was really taking place. And I lived through 2008. I understood what was going on. But when the debt crisis happened in Europe, which is very similar to what happened in the United States, I remember watching CNBC and they were talking about the Greece bond yields. And they were saying that if the Greece bond yields remain below 7%, the S&P 500 was going to be fine. But if it went above 7%, the S&P 500 was going to collapse. And this was happening on a day-to-day -day basis and just causing unbelievable volatility. And I remember realizing how could I have ever predicted that the Greece bond yields would play a significant role in my own portfolio? Not only that, how could I mitigate that risk? It's too complicated. It's so many black swans, too correlated. And so I really started focusing on the more 
more simple investments. Uh, I know that may seem kind of counterintuitive given that I focus on commercial, but you know, at the end of the day, when real estate is rented and cash flowing, you're making money. The grease bond yields are not going to play a significant role in that no matter what happens. And so that's kind of what led me down the path and eventually led me to make my first real estate investment. So that's awesome. So talk about your first real estate investment. What did you do to get to kind of get into that? Sure. So when 2010 really happened, I jumped full 100% into real estate. I just started networking as much as possible. Back then, I would go to three to five networking events every single week. I live in Los Angeles. So anywhere within two and a half hours of Los Angeles, if there was a networking event that you were hosting, you've probably met me. (laughs) And I was building a network of individuals, but the mood was very somber in California at that time. And so a lot of these networking events were quite small, but I eventually met a very tight knit group of individuals that thought about the game very similar to me. And that led me to make my first investment, which was in a mortgage note, a performing note. So back then we could loan money to real estate flippers at 60% loan to value sometimes as low as 50% of purchase price. I mean, unbelievably favorable terms and 12, 13% you know, interest only paying six-year terms. And that still to this day, on a risk-adjusted basis, I think those are some of the best investments I ever made. Of course, it's not really available anymore because prices have changed and everything. But that was my first investment and really happy with the way that those end up turning out. Just a really kind of a no-brainer. It's basically a CD that just happens to pay you into double digits. So- that was kind of my intro there. You eventually got into you know some commercial real estate, specifically self-storage. So talk about how that came about. Sure. So in 2013 or 14, you know, we had been investing significantly in the traditional asset classes, multifamily, office, retail, et cetera. But it became more and more challenging to find favorable risk-adjusted returns in those asset classes. And there had been so much price bid up that it was really challenging to justify that you really had an edge on the market when there's so many major competitors out there with a very similar business strategy. So we started looking at the economic data. And you know, there's a lot of really significant data out there in terms of where we are in the economic cycle. I mean, as of right now, we're currently in our 101st month of the expansion. I think there's only been two expansions since 1857 that have been longer than that. That's 33 market cycles in the time. I mean, that's just, that's really valid. Not only in terms of just the time, time isn't really what causes cycles to expand and collapse, but the mindset that goes along with that time, people start to get accustomed to the consistent price inflation. And so it's an important data point. Additionally, income is a big issue in the United States. And so we're looking at all these data points and we realize that it's important to focus on recession resistant assets. So cell storage and mobile home parks came up originally. And you know, self-storage is a great example because the demand for the product, people use it when they're going through some kind of economic change, a lifestyle change. And a lot of those changes can be brought on by recessions. So you think about kids moving home from college, economic corrections, downsizing, foreclosures, et cetera. And those are really common during recessions. So it really balances out what's going on in the economy overall in terms of income, et cetera. So you really like self-storage, obviously, and and you said it's more recession-proof than maybe some other asset classes. What are some other things you like about self-storage specifically? Yeah, sure. So there's a tremendous amount of ways to add value to the property because the complexity is the business. So most people hear self-storage, they think that you're basically just providing a place to store things. That can be true and it can be profitable by doing so. But the reality is there's a tremendous amount of ways to add value through ancillary income items. So for example, 
U-Haul rentals are a great component of this. So we can buy properties based on in-place income and then leverage our pre-existing relationship with U-Haul, allow U-Haul to park their trucks on our facility, and we get a transactional fee for facilitating that transaction. So I personally invest in properties where that one line item went from $0 a month to $3,500 a month directly to the bottom line. That's $600,000 of value creation, depending on the cap rate. And so there's several of those. Mandatory tenant insurance is another one. You have merchandise sales, just the entire business, the difference between a B-class property and A-class property. If you can really facilitate that transition, you can add up to a million dollars of value. The key for me is that risk-adjusted basis. So simply implementing that U-Haul strategy doesn't require any capital expenditure. So you're able to add value without taking on significant risk, which is really what I think investing is all about. And there's plenty of other reasons, but kind of a- Yeah, recession-proof and you can control the value with all commercial real estate. Any other things you like about self-storage? Yeah, sure. I mean, the sticky tenant base is really major function. So typical asset classes, a 3% rental increase, especially over the long term, is what most people underwrite their transactions for. So with self-storage, because the gross dollars amount is relatively small, three or 4% rental increase wouldn't even matter. So commonly see 6% rental increases on an annual basis. In fact, many operators can do 6% rental increases twice a year in properties. And that's another bonus is the 30-day leases as opposed to one-year leases. So if you're implementing a 6% rental increase on something like $130 or so, six, nine bucks, depending on the deal, that's really insignificant. So the question becomes, is someone going to take the day off work, hire a rental truck, go through that whole process, continue to just move their stuff for that $9 a month or so? The economics just don't make sense. And so you know that's the thesis, but the data is very well aligned with that. We ran a significant analysis on occupancy ratings, cap rates during both the 2001 and 2008 recessions occupancies were high, rental increases continued. And so the data lines up very well with kind of those big picture stuffs we've been talking about. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, what markets are you investing in and which ones are you trying to avoid? Yeah. So it's a really good question. It's kind of interesting with self-storage. So one of the things you want to be careful of is the fact that this asset class is relatively new and it has blown up over the last couple decades, You know, going from basically zero in the 1970s to 53,000 now. So that's more than all the Starbucks, McDonald's, and Subways combined, right? This is just something that's happened essentially overnight. Now, the reason for this is that they're relatively inexpensive to build, and they're very favorable from an investor's perspective. So you have to identify markets where there's a significant disequilibrium between the supply and demand. One of the ways to do this is to identify how much square footage there is in a particular radius, and divide that number by seven, which is about the national average of square footage per person. And so when you have that answer, you have a good idea of how much supply demand is needed in the particular market. So we look for markets that are at least 150,000 square feet undersupplied. That way, even if a very large facility was built right next door, we'd still be in a disequilibrium in our favor. And so that typically happens in the Southeast, a combination of demographics, a lot of baby boomers, they're downsizing more likely to use self-storage and the economics. So that'll kind of give you an idea. Want to stay away from markets where there's a lot of land. And how do you get to that data to make that determination whether it's undersupply or oversupply? 
There's a lot of providers out there. I'd say that some of them are very expensive and those are the ones you're going to get the best information from. So CoStar would be one of those. We're sponsor specific. So we have access to some of those tools through our sponsors in conjunction with our sponsors. That'll be a good example. And then you can get a good idea by just pulling comps, LoopNet, Redfin, et cetera, things like that. Not Redfin because that's residential, but LoopNet will give you a good idea. Yelp will give you a good idea as well. So what do you look for in terms of some of the underwriting? Some things are similar to multifamily, but expense ratios, price per unit, or other rules of thumb, what do you guys look for? You're not really providing that much. So in terms of expense ratio, you can see 40 or even below. You know, We try to be realistic in terms of being conservative in our assumptions, but 40% is kind of the industry standard, and it can actually get lower than that as you effectuate those rental increases. On a price per unit, that usually ends up being about $12,000 or $14,000 per unit price per square foot in the markets we're looking at, something in the range of sixty-five to one hundred and ten, depending on how desirable that market is. And something to pay attention to is the climate-controlled units. This is a major upsell. And if you expand a property, it's almost exclusively going to be exclusively climate-controlled units, just because they're somewhat more expensive to build, but you can take about 30% more. So that's one of the things we look at in underwriting is how how closely the physical occupancy, which is the amount of units that are rented, and the economic occupancy is. That discrepancy there can be really eliminated over the long term. But the key is that because the tenant base is essentially stuck there, like we were talking about earlier, you can be very aggressive as you burn off those concessions and increase rents. So how do you manage all this stuff? So obviously, multifamily, your property management companies manage it, which is one reason we like it. Is there something similar for self-storage or how do you do it there? Yeah, good question. And there's a lot of different strategies for this. You know, With the sponsors that we look at, typically, there's two strategies. One is sponsors that want to hire on-site property managers that want to be entrepreneurial, that want to come up in the business, that want to go from property manager to regional manager to some kind of VP of, of something like that. And then the other strategy is to hire a retired couple, You know, sometimes a retired military couple, where they are going to stay on site. You're not worried about a lot of turnover and things like that. And those are the two strategies. But certainly an on-site property manager, that's probably a most important part of having an A-class or class A property, just from a security standpoint. Those are typically the strategies. And the on-site manager with any investment, particularly passive investments, is going to be the most important single determinant factor. Yeah, that's right. Now, just to be clear, what do you mean by sponsor, just so that everybody's clear on what you mean by that? So when I look at investments, there's a variety of different ways to invest. You can joint venture, you can actively invest, etc. My personal strategy has been to invest passively. And when I do that, I find an expert that is focused on one particular niche. So for example, with self-storage, there's companies that have done you know $100 million of transactions, taken multiple properties full cycle. All they do is focus on that. They manage the manager of the property. So there's one level removed of me. I'm a passive investor. And so really what that means is that all of my due diligence is front-loaded. All the work that's going to go along with my investment should be front-loaded. Now, it's kind of a gray area because of what I do, right? So I'm a little bit more active than most passive investors. But for our particular clients, what we'll see is that what's required of them after investing should be zero. 
Now, there's certain risks that go along with that. So our due diligence is mostly focused on the person we're making a bet on, namely the sponsor, but they're the one overseeing the entire transaction, bringing the expertise, going on the loan, things like that. All right, great. So you're actually helping people invest in self-storage by being the front man and evaluating opportunities on behalf of your investors. So what are some of the things in that you look for in a sponsor, things you like, things you don't like? This is probably the most important part of due diligence. And it really comes down to, you know, to be honest with you, reading between the lines and making an assessment on who you're making a bet on. So number one, before we even jump into that, we've got to look at have they done $100 million worth of deals? Have they done 10 deals, right? Do they have 10 years of experience? I think those are kind of give you a good range to start before you even start the conversation. And that's a requirement of anyone that we work with to that capacity. Then once we're looking at that, you know, the next most important thing is to look at the pro forma. And the reason for this is we really want to see, again, who is the person we're making a bet on? Are these underwriting assumptions conservative? Are they putting themselves in a position to deliver and build a long-term relationship? Or is the kind of thing where they just want to raise capital for this one particular deal so they can get their acquisition fee and move on? There's different ways you can do that. I mean, asking the same question over and over again, when you go on site, for example, I always ride with the sponsor when we're driving because it gives me six hours with them just to grill them, not only in terms of business, but in terms of the way they view life, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, you're getting into an LLC. This is an agreement, seven to 10 year hold period. You know, we're locked together and we want to make sure it's a good fit. So, you know, there's an extensive amount of ways, background checks, criminal checks, references, et cetera, and then pulling random deeds. I mean, I can go on forever, but this is the majority of the due diligence we do. Basically verifying the claims match up with reality. Yeah, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But do you have a case study you can talk about a little bit about what you've done, what it looked like, what it kind of feels like? Sure. We recently did a deal, which I would do this all day. And if you're a sponsor out there, a broker out there, and you have a deal that's similar to this, I'll do it. It's not going to be the most high-flying deal, but again, on a risk-adjusted basis, it's hard to beat. So we invest in a property in Woodstock, Georgia. It's a sub-market of Atlanta that's growing right now substantially. The key here is that the previous property manager, this is an A-class property. They just simply were not implementing any of these value-add strategies that I've talked about earlier. So no U-Haul, no mandatory tenant insurance, essentially no merchandise sales, admin sales, fees, et cetera. And so we know just looking at the size of the property, looking at the occupancy of the property and the desirability of the property, this should produce at least $2,000 of U-Haul on a monthly basis. This should produce at least $1,500 a month from mandatory tenant insurance, another 500 a month or so with those other aligned items. You add that up, you're looking at $4,000 a month. So this is at least 600 or maybe even $700,000 of value. Additionally, the previous owner just recently expanded the facility by 222 climate controlled units. So you're in a market that's 90% occupied in a property that was previously 90% occupied just eight months ago, and now it's 60% occupied. Not because the property isn't desirable, just because these, these units were recently expanded. So our business plan is to add those ancillary income items, lease up those vacant units as fast as possible. And so when you're looking at adding almost $700,000 of value without even including that lease up factor, which we think we can do it somewhere between 2 and 4% per month, you know, we're adding a significant amount of value. And when you're looking at a market that's 90% and a property that's 60%, to me, that's kind of a no-brainer. I'll do that all day, like I said. Yeah, that's right. Now, you mentioned a whole period of seven to 10 years. Do you like to combine it with a cash-out refinance or what is normally your exit strategy there? Yeah. And this is something that has come up a lot recently. And I think it's important. When we underwrite deals, we want to be as conservative as possible. So we don't actually project those kind of 
liquidity events. Having said that, when you're adding significant value like this, especially when it comes to the increasing the physical occupancy, I think it's likely that something like that may happen. Now, this isn't going to be 100% cash out refi just by the nature of the fact that there's already some in-place income. It's not that heavy value add. At the end of the day, if we can have both the asset and capital back, you know, that's obviously very desirable. But we want to hold these assets for a long time. Both can be achieved. All right. So you get your crystal ball out. What trends do you see happening in self-storage and how do you think that'll affect things? I think the most interesting thing right now is the on-demand services that are coming out. I don't know if you've seen them, but there's actually an app, a billboard in Los Angeles that says, self-storage is stupid. I'm like, oh, great. This is going to be good for uh, a lot of investors are going to see that. The point of the apps are basically you have an on-demand product where you can click that you want to have someone come pick up your stuff. They drive those things out, usually 45 or an hour away from the hub of the city where warehouse space is much cheaper than it is in the city hub. So they can charge about the same as a self-storage facility in a desirable area, but you're actually getting the on-demand service essentially for free. Now, we don't typically invest in areas like Los Angeles, San Francisco, things like that, New York particularly, but in those areas, they're going to deal with some challenges because of this. There's going to be downward pressure on those. The reason that it doesn't really affect the tertiary or secondary markets is that if you're in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and you drive 40 minutes away from Fayetteville, North Carolina, the prices are the same. It's not really like you know maybe the 20% differential, but not a 400% differential. Automation also is really important. There's a lot of managers that are being replaced by kiosks. My perspective on that, it's a little bit unproven. I'd say that our ability to upsell clients in terms of those things I was mentioning earlier, U-Haul, mandatory tenant insurance, and also climate controlled, et cetera. I think that those managers may pay for themselves. It's a little early to tell. And then also, you know, the baby boomers, they're downsizing at significant rates. So markets that are known for having affluent baby boomers in particular, like Florida, for example, I think are going to experience a significant increase in demand for the product. That's cool. Now you have a, an ebook that looks really cool because it gives you a really nice overview of the asset class. It's called Little Boxes, Big Profits, A Passive Investor's Guide to Self-Storage. And in it, you make a good point that passive investing is a great way to get started with commercial real estate, but self-storage specifically. Can you talk about more about next steps for someone considering this? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things where the ideas that I've outlined today, I think almost anyone can grasp, right? It's really the affecting of these strategies that's really key. And so the case that I make in the book is that with the real value out with self-storage being tied to the complexities of the actual operational efficiencies and to buy mom and pop operators, you don't want to be one of those mom and pop operators that us and our team ends up buying a property from. And so for me, if I can leverage someone else's expertise that's been in the business for you know 10 years or 20 years or something like that, that's done all these deals, I'm happy giving up, let's say even 40% of the gains. Because I would have to focus exclusively on that one particular asset class for the next 10 years to be half as good as them in the first place. So I'm happy making that change. You know, I talk a little bit about the lifestyle that goes along with being a passive investor. You know, you're freeing yourself up to do the things you love. I happen to love being a commercial real estate investor. So I happen to build a business around that. There may be some confusion as to how you can be a full-time passive investor, but I talk a little bit about that in the book as well. Well, some do and some don't, right? Some simply want to completely passive. That's what they always want to make sure their, their money is working for them and others yeah. use it as a pathway to become active. And to me, either strategy is fine. It gets you in the game. And I think that's the key. Exactly. So what are you excited about right now? 
Man, there's a lot of stuff out there right now. I mean, to be honest with you, it's an exciting time to invest in this particular asset class because a lot of people are chasing yield and they're chasing yield into unknown territories. And so it may present a unique opportunity to buy properties from really sophisticated individuals and groups that don't have an expertise in self-storage. A lot of the private equity guys out there, they've stayed away from this space because the purchase prices aren't large enough to really attract them. But as multifamily in particular gets built up, there's going to be some opportunity. Construction's coming back. I mentioned earlier, I'm happy buying properties that are under physical occupancy. So there could be an opportunity where there's this massive construction boom. These operators can't fill vacant lots as much as our sponsors can. So we can buy 2018 development that is 50% occupied in a market that's 98% occupied. I mean, this is definitely a reality. That's as much as it is for self-storage. There's a lot of other things I'm excited about, but that's to the point. <laughs> that's awesome. What's the best way, hundred for people to find and connect with you? I own Cashflow Connections, like I mentioned again, cashflowconnections.com. I'm also the host of the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast. So if you're watching this podcast, you guys like podcasts, commercial real estate has some really stellar guests on there. In fact, Michael's going to be a guest in not too long. So, you know, one of those things, free information, there's a ton of good takeaways from that podcast, just had a lot of different, really sophisticated operators. So I'm happy to help you guys out there as well. Awesome. Hunter, thanks for coming to the show and, and sharing with us about uh, self-storage, man. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it too. And Michael, I just want to thank you again. You know, Looking at some of the stuff you put out over the years, you're just a complete titan when it comes to educational content. There's just so many free videos and blog posts that you guys have done. So I really appreciate it. And, and thanks a lot. You've done a tremendous amount for the industry. You know, people sometimes ask me, you know, is multifamily right for me? And I say, you know, at the end of the day, it's really not quite important which commercial real estate asset class you choose, whether it's mobile home parks, self-storage or multifamily. And everyone's got kind of their, you know, their preference, I assume. And, and Hunter obviously has gravitated towards self-storage and mobile home parks. I've looked into it. It's just not for me. I, I just really like apartment buildings, multifamily. But if you're not quite sure, then by all means, look into the asset class and, you know, download uh, Hunter's free ebook at cashflowconnections.com. It's called Little Boxes, Big Profits, a passive investor's guide to self-storage. And uh, it's a great introduction to the asset class of self-storage. If you haven't already decided on multifamily, if you are uh, interested in investing in, in commercial real estate and you love self-storage and definitely give Hunter a call and he, I'm sure he would be happy to hear from you. If you're interested in investing in multifamily, we'd be happy to talk to you as well. And then in that case, you visit our website at themichaelblanc.com forward slash invest. And we have an investor portal that you can log into and create an account and we'll keep you posted on any kind of upcoming opportunities and educational opportunities as well. And on the topic of raising money, which is so important, if you're actually raising money yourself, by all means, grab my free book, which is called The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. And you can get that also at themichaelblanc.com forward slash ebook. So hopefully you found that interesting today and uh, we will look forward to catching you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.